Revelation chapter 6. Well, last week in Revelation chapter 5, we learned that Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals, which means symbolically to reveal that He is worthy to reveal and carry out God's end time plan. It's a plan that we need to understand that's in progress uh, even right now and it will be brought to full completion at the return of Christ. Our text for today is going to show uh, the already of this as well as the not yet. When you're reading scripture a lot of times we have to understand that there's an already but a not yet that's going on within the same passages of scripture. In verses 1 through 8, we'll see how Jesus' judgment on unbelievers has already begun as a part of God's end-time plan. We're going to talk about the end-time plan here in a little bit to try to explain that. And in verses 9 through 11, we see that the martyrs want more than just a partial judgment. They want a full display of God's justice. So in verse 10, you see them cry out, How long? And the answer they receive in verse 11 is an interesting answer. And don't miss this. The answer they receive is an answer for us as well. The answer is to be patient. We don't like that word, right? Be patient. The end is coming. And then in verses 12 through 17, the end is coming, but it comes in God's appointed time. God's in control. It's going to come, but it'll come at God's appointed time. So if you're looking at your handout, uh, we see the main idea. Jesus is judging and will judge unbelievers as part of God's end time plan. Our response is to wait and to trust. That's what he's telling us here. Jesus is judging and he will judge Unbelievers is part of God's end time plan, but our response now is to wait and to trust. So looking at verses 1 through 8, kind of outlined it this way, four seals and four horsemen. That's what we see in these first eight verses. Uh, here's, here's what I want to say up front. A lot of us are intrigued about the book of Revelation, right? Go ahead and admit it. You're intrigued. You want to know every detail. You want to know what all this stuff is. You want to know what it could mean, what it might mean. Uh, I've learned in studying the book of Revelation, and I'm continuing to learn, there's some things I just don't have a clue about. Some people will say, here's what they think is going on, but if they're perfectly humble, they'll say, this could be it, but I'm not really sure. My goal in preaching through the book of the Revelation is to take every section and show you, here's the main thing that's going on, this is what we need to focus on. Some of this other stuff, we can speculate, we don't know for sure, but my goal is to help you understand, here's the main thing that's going on in these verses. Verses 1 through 8, the four seals and the four horsemen. He said in verse 1, <coughs> excuse me, says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come, Jesus. Here's what we've got to understand. Jesus the Lamb has taken the scroll, right? Chapter 5, he's taken the scroll, and here we see Jesus opening the first seal on that scroll. Here's what this tells us. Are you listening? Jesus is in charge. He's in control. This is his doing. He's in control of this. 
John is about to see, John is about to see what he wept over not seeing in chapter 5, verse 4. Remember that? John wept because no one was worthy to open the seals of the scroll and to reveal God's end time plan, so he wept. But now, what he wept over, he's actually getting to see. And the first seal is open, and John says, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. He's given the command to come. So one of these four living creatures who sits around God's throne speaks, and his voice, John says, sounds like thunder. That thunder there speaks is symbolic of authority and judgment and a coming storm. That's what it's... It's for us, right? When we hear thunder, we know something's coming. We know a storm's coming. So that's what's being said here. This thunder speaks of the authority that's coming from the throne and the judgment and this coming storm. He gives a call, and that call is described in verse 2. He's given the call to come. Then we see the, uh, the description in verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. In verse 2, the first seal gives us a rider on a white horse. If you're like most people, you're going, who's the rider on the white horse? That's the question everybody seems to have. Who's the rider on the white horse? Uh, there's a noticeable likeness here between this rider on a white horse and the way that Jesus comes riding on a white horse in chapter 19. I think this probably goes without saying, and it's not a great surprise, that most Bible scholars and commentators are divided on who this rider on this horse is. And by the way, that's been the way it's been for a long, long time. Everybody's been divided on who this is. Some suggest that it's Jesus. Others suggest that it's an imposter, uh, an antichrist. I take the view that the writer is an antichrist. I don't take the view that it's Jesus. I think it's an antichrist. And I'll give you three reasons, not exhaustive reasons, for why I, I think this is an antichrist. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, Jesus warns that many will come claiming to be Him. It seems that this is a, a, a pretender. Okay? The second reason... I hold to this being an antichrist. It seems difficult to see this as Jesus because why would he open the seal which contains a revelation of himself? That's probably the biggest reason I, I move away from it being him. And thirdly, it seems best to see the white horse and its rider belonging to the other three riders and horses as they seek evil against the world. They're incorporated with these others. The rider on the white horse is not Jesus, but it's actually an enemy. Of Jesus is who it is. Now, here's what we need to understand. Even though these writers have evil intentions, don't forget, are you listening? Don't forget, all of them are under the sovereign control of God. They come, why? Because He sends them. They're under the control of God. They're under the control of the Lamb here. They're under their control. The rider on the white horse, it says there has a bow. And, and, and notice, he was given a crown. He didn't take a crown for himself. He was given a crown. And we're going to see this show up time and time again as we go through here. Uh, this phrase, uh, was given a crown, is what um, uh, language experts in Greek would call a divine passive. Divine meaning God 
passive meaning the action that's being carried out is given to them from the outside. The rider on the white horse has a bow and he was given the crown. In other words, God is the giver of the crown. God is in control of this horseman's activity. The rider on the white horse is not going to do anything other than what God gives him to do. Notice it says he goes out to what? He goes out conquering and to conquer. And when somebody does that, when someone goes out conquering and to conquer, you know there's going to be conflict. There's going to be trouble with those who seek to conquer. And that conflict comes into view when the second seal is opened. Okay? This one was given a crown. He's under the control and the authority of God to go out conquering and to conquer. And then that conflict comes from Him. And then this second seal is opened in verses 3 and 4. We see what follows the Antichrist. Remember who this is. And see what follows Him. When He opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And verse 4, And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given the great sword. Now we have a bright red horse. Its rider was permitted to take peace. And he was given a great sword. The rider is permitted and he is given. Here again is that divine passive again. God gives the rider on a white horse a crown. And he comes out as a Christ-pretending conqueror. Then God gives the second rider the ability to take away peace. And God gives him a sword, a great sword with which he will... When we think sword, what do we think? Particularly in ancient biblical times, a sword was used for what? War. And the color of the second horse represents all that comes with that. Bloodshed and slaughter that accompany war. And all the violence that comes with that. Notice, he takes the peace. But the people slay one another. The word slay, or some of you may have a translation that says kills, means to, uh, means to slaughter. It has the idea of uh, social conflict within and between peoples and nations. So this second horse is coming, this red horse, and he's given the, the, the ability to take peace, and he has this great sword with which to carry out war, and a lot of people look at this as being symbolic of this social conflict within, between peoples and nations. War. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, we read of Jesus predicting wars. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Then I find it interesting what he says after that. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus has taken hold of the scroll. He's opening it and history is unfolding just as He said it would. We have to take into account that you know, in the ancient world, uh, you've watched enough movies uh, you know, uh, from when they, when they try, Hollywood tries to make a biblical movie uh, or someone tries to make a biblical movie and they show war scenes. They can be pretty gruesome, right? Pretty, uh, you know, just violent. We have to take into account uh, the readers who first heard this letter, when they hear this, what's going through their mind. And, and in the ancient time, when an army would uh, lay siege to a place to take it, farming became almost impossible. And 
if you can't farm, you what? You don't eat. They would come and they would camp in the fields outside and, and they would steal the crops for their own food. They would destroy the crops. They would burn them. Or just by marching through the fields. Some, some nations would dig up the land and sow salt in the field after they came through, which meant for years and years and years they couldn't plant crops and grow food anymore. Destroying food would hasten the takeover. That was the idea there. And this understanding helps us with what we read next in verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat. I'm going to stop there. A quart of wheat was enough for one person for one day to eat. A quart of wheat was enough for one person to eat for a day. A quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage in biblical times. So they were having to pay what? Had to work a whole day to buy enough food to eat for one day. Then it says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley. Barley was a poor man's grain. It was of lesser quality. And that same denarius, a day's wage, would buy enough for three people to eat that day. So there was a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And then it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. The third horse, at least seen here, is black. And the idea here is that of famine, of devastation. There's a progression going on. The red horse brings war and violence and destruction. And along with that comes famine. The rider on the black horse, notice there he has scales. And these scales are probably going to be used to measure out the wheat and the barley. Okay? Uh, during famine, food was given out. You've seen this. Uh, I don't want to... I'm kind of looking here and I get myself in trouble here. If you lived during the, one of the great wars, I've always heard the stories, particularly in World War I, that they rationed out a lot of food. During famine... Food is given out in rationed amounts. And in ancient times, scales were used to make sure you didn't get too much. They would weigh that stuff out to, to the very amount you need to get. And the price of the wheat and the barley here, you notice it's a day's wage, but most Bible scholars say that this price that was being paid was eight to ten times the normal price that would be paid for this food. So you can see it's in, in short demand... And when you get it, you got to what? you got to pay eight to ten times more than what you would pay for it. So all this brings famine. All this brings strife and, and, and heartache and suffering. Then it says that the oil and the wine are not to be harmed. Most Bible scholars say that these items, and particularly in this biblical times, belong to the rich. Oil and wine, you had to be pretty wealthy. You had to be pretty affluent to have an uh, accumulation of that. And the destruction... The destructive conditions of war always affect the poor. If you're poor and something else comes along, poorer, right? It just keeps getting worse and worse. But the rich might not be affected by all this. So war has severe devastating effects on people. War is not limited to just food shortages, but also results in sickness and disease. You go to some of these foreign countries when war is going on those places, and after... Uh, 
they go through and people are killed and slaughtered and the food is destroyed, that a lot of times there's sickness and disease that goes on for months and years after this war takes place. And that seems to be what we read about in verses 7 and 8. <coughs> when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So the four seals open, and then you have this pale horse coming here. In, in the Greek, that word, the word for pale there means greenish or yellow color. Okay? Greenish yellow. That's not a color you go looking for when you're going to buy a new shirt to wear to church, right? I want a greenish yellow. You want them pale greenish yellow shirts to wear. The idea behind this color is the idea of ill health that comes with sickness and disease and infection, all that's caused by these other things that have come. Thus, the writer's name is Death. And Death is followed by his companion, Hades. Notice again in verse 8, there's another divine passive here. Death and Hades were what? Given. Over a fourth of the earth. We're given authority over the fourth of the earth. They, they use this authority, and the way they use it summarizes these four horses. Okay? They kill with the sword, reflecting the war started by the first two horses. They, they kill with the famine brought by the rider of the third horse. They kill with the deadly disease reflected by the rider on the pale horse. So there's a sense in which the four horses, uh, the fourth horse here summarizes the first four and, and ties them all together. Does that make sense? Everything's happening in these first three. The fourth one says, in accumulation, here's all that's happening because of them. Now, why do we say that these four horsemen represent God's judgment? Well, the answer, if you're taking notes, can be found in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 6. If you go to Zechariah 1 and 6, there, there are horsemen... Just like we see here in Revelation. And there the, the purpose of the horsemen are for punishing the unbelieving nations that oppose God's rule and oppress His people. That's what's going on in Zechariah in the Old Testament. This is what we see the four horsemen in Revelation 6 doing on, on a worldwide scale. The judgments these fours bring are the exact same list of punishments also seen in Ezekiel chapter 14. You can read that later for yourself. The same judgments, the same way these are carried out, we can read in Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel 14, God brings this on disobedient people. Revelation 6 is God's wrath on unbelievers. That's what's going on here in Revelation chapter 6. And here's what we need to understand. This judgment is ongoing throughout church history and the history of the world. These judgments are not completely in the future. The judgment is both an already and a not yet. This judgment is happening now as you and I sit here, as we live in this world. This judgment is taking place, but it's an already but a not yet. You may say, I thought you said the opening of the scroll revealed God's end time judgment. It does. But a question we need to ask would be, when did the end time plan of God begin? 
When did Jesus start carrying out God's end time plan? When did the end time start? If you read the New Testament carefully, that's the key. If you read it carefully, a careful reading of the New Testament would indicate that we are in the last days already. We're just not in the last of the last days. So if somebody says, do you think we're living in the last days? You know what your answer would be? Yes, we're just not living the last of the last days. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, Jesus says these judgments, wars, famines, and earthquakes are the beginning of birth pains before the end will come. In other words, Jesus said that wars and famines and earthquakes, these catastrophic events will be a regular part of this age until He returns to redeem all of creation. God's wrath, Jesus carrying out judgment, is already happening. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, It is the last hour. The last hour began... Here's when the, here's when the last days began. You ready? It began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's when the last days began. You're thinking, well, man, that's a long time. Well, yes. It's a long time, but the Bible, the New Testament is very clear that at the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's when the last days begin. Judgment begins to fall on this world. Now, if, you, if you're thinking, you're thinking, well, you said this is judgment on unbelievers, and it's happening now. I know a lot of people who are not unbelievers who are caught up in this, right? Passion, present judgments are not the final end judgment. And also past and present judgments mean that not everyone who suffers God's judgment is God's enemy. Think modern day, okay? 9-11-2001. Do you think there were some Christians who were killed during that time? Sure there were. 2004. A tsunami hits Indonesia and kills 225,000 people. Do you think that there were some Christians in Indonesia that died? Sure. 2014, Ebola in Africa. You remember that? 11,000 people died there. Remember, we sent doctors and people over and they had to come back and be quarantined when they come back. Do you think there were some Christians there in Africa who died in that? 2017, Las Vegas shooting. I find it interesting in verse 4 it says they slay one another. Remember us reading that? They slay one another. We kill ourselves. It's God's judgment. 2018, the wildfires in California. Now, I want to be careful here. You don't need to be going around and telling everybody, like some Christians did when Katrina hit New Orleans, that's God's judgment on the city of New Orleans. You need to be careful. You don't need to be saying things like that because it could be, but you're not for sure. We shouldn't be going around saying those things. These are initial outpourings of God's wrath, but they're not the final judgment. Now, why do I say these four seals reveal limited judgment, but not God's final judgment? Some people view chapter 6 as it's all the end time judgment. I side with the other side who says it's not. And here's why. Notice in verse 6, famine, which is a serious situation, it's, it's impartial. The food is limited, right? It doesn't say there's no food. It says there's just partial food. When God's final judgment comes, there is no food. It's, it's all gone. 
Also in verse 8, it says many people die. Fourth of the population. Worldwide death. But not all people die. As will be the case when God's final judgment comes. Everybody is taken out. These examples are why we say that the first four seals are limited. They're a limited expression of God's judgment. These first four seals don't describe uh, the unrestrained wrath of God at the end of history. These judgments anticipate the final judgment. So what we see happening in our world, all these things that go on since the, for the history of the church and the history of the world, all these things we see going on are judgment of God, but it's not the final judgment. They point us to the final judgment. It's what these things do, which is still in the future. Now, you may be asking, as I asked, why would God allow all the pain and death and horror that makes up world history? Why, why allow that? You ever ask that question? Why would God do that? The simple answer is, it's God's judgment. God's judgment comes because people do not honor God as God. It's God showing what happens when people reject the true God and they embrace false gods. And I think even more so, God wants people to see what happens when people reject Jesus and replace Him with another Savior. You want to go that route? Here's the judgment for that. He lets all this happen because He wants people to know that only He can bring peace, justice, and security and happiness. God wants to be worshipped as God. It is God's sovereign will that these things happen in verses 1 through 8. Now, I'm going to stop here and do you a, a theology lesson, okay? It's God's sovereign will that these things happen in verses 1 through 8. But this doesn't mean that these things are God's moral will. And by that, I mean that God doesn't approve of evil. He doesn't do evil. He may decree that evil happen, but He does so without doing evil Himself and without approving it. Okay? In other words, God may in His sovereignty, in His sovereign will, that His moral will be broken. He may allow death, murder, and killing to happen. Even though that's His moral will that it not happen, He may allow that to happen. Some of you may be saying, I don't, I don't know so much about that. It's God's moral will that people not kill others, but yet He allows that to happen. I, 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 I think I disagree with that. Well, let me give you one example in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. And before I do that, let me say this. How about the cross? How about the cross? Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28 says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you hear that? Listen, it was for sure a sin to kill Jesus. But doing so was God's predestined plan. It was against God's moral will to kill, but it was God's will to allow that to happen. And I say that, and I also I say that with 
you know, I hold that loosely because there's a lot of mystery going on there with God's sovereignty and man's free will and what's going on. But I think it would be a mistake to deny God's sovereignty over these judgments. It would be a mistake for us to deny that God is not in control of what's going on. Now, you, you're sitting there going, well, why is it good for me to know? Why is it good for us to know? Why is this good for us to know? God's sovereignty, God's control seen here in Revelation 6 means that, are you listening? In a crazy, confused world, suffering does not occur by chance or blind fate. God's people aren't immune from trouble and suffering. When war breaks out, when planes crash into buildings, Christians feel the effects. They suffer along with the wicked, right? How do we reconcile that Christians suffer along with the wicked? The answer is that God's people receive spiritual protection to keep them from losing their faith and to grow spiritually during suffering. And that will come up more in chapter 7. God in His wisdom, when pouring out wrath to punish unbelievers, uses the very same suffering to purify and sanctify believers. How do you as a Christian live in a world when there's suffering, famine, war, death? You don't live in faithless despair. You don't live in hopelessness. Your hope, listen, is not in this world, but your hope is in the Lamb who is on the throne. Remember chapter 5? Here's the Lamb. He's on the throne. He's in control. Your hope is not in this world, but your hope is in the Lamb who is in control. Regardless of what may come, Christian, you trust that God is in control. No matter what happens... This world can't bear the weight of all your hopes and dreams. It cannot do it. Your hope is in the promises of God that there is a new world coming, a place that really is your home. That's what this chapter is telling us. Now, verses 9 and 11. Not 9 and 11, 9 through 11. Look, longing for God's justice. In verse 9... God sees Jesus open the field seal. And John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. John sees martyred believers here. Those who are killed for their faithfulness to God's word and for their faithful testimony to Jesus. For their faithfulness to the gospel. If you remember in chapter 2 verse 10, Jesus called the church at Samaria to be what? Faithful unto death. Those saints in Smyrna now hear of those who did just that. Those souls under the altar had had been faithful unto death. Being under the altar uh, symbolizes the value that Jesus places on them and shows that He considers their death to be a precious sacrifice to Him. Here's here's how we need to think, Christian. You you have to come to the point where what what matters most is your faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to the Word of God. All of the Word of God. Not just parts of it, but faithfulness to all of the Word of God. Faithfulness to the Gospel must be important to you than pleasure, more important to you than comfort, and more important than life itself. That's what these martyrs, that's how they looked at that. We must value faithfulness to God and His Word more than we value the ability to go on living our peaceful, happy lives. Notice that these are killed for fulfilling two of the great commandments, loving God and loving people. Verse 9 says, They were slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. 
They were slain for their faithfulness to the Word of God. But notice it says, for the faithfulness they, or for the witness they had borne. People who are faithful to God, who suffer persecution, do so because of faithfulness to the Word and for bearing witness to the Gospel to others. I look at this and I see faithful Christians are people who are rightly relating to God and other human beings. We, we read verse 9 and we, we think, slain for the Word of God, I, I can understand that, and for the witness they had borne. These people were witnessing the gospel to others, telling the gospel to others, and what happened to them? They lost their lives for that. Now we're sitting here thinking, you know, I've shared the gospel probably at least once to some degree with somebody, and I didn't lose my head over that, right? That may not happen where we live. There may be some persecution that comes. And I think the longer we go on, the more that's going to take place. There's more persecution going to come. But I read this, and here's what I see. They were slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. And here's what I think. The most loving thing you can do for another person is not leave them alone. The most loving thing you can do for another person is not affirm them in their sin. The most loving thing you can do for another person is to bear witness to the Word of God and share the Gospel with them. You think, they might not like that. (coughs) See, if you're like me, you're more concerned about what's going to happen to me versus what's going to happen to them if they don't hear the Gospel and get saved. We've we got to refuse to accept our culture's view that it's wrong to tell people the gospel, wrong to testify to other people that they need to trust Jesus or they're going to face the judgment of God. Now, we must be careful with the truth. Right? We love people. But listen, don't go away from here saying, my pastor said I need to approach people on the street so you're going to go to hell if you don't get saved. If they punch you, that may happen. You, you've got to be careful. There has, this has to be done in love, right? We speak the gospel in love. But the most loving thing, the only loving thing to do is to speak the Word of God, to speak the gospel to people. If we don't do that, listen, I know this is strong. If we don't do that, we're basically saying to people, I don't care if you go to hell. That's what I told myself this week. I've been struggling over the last four, five, six weeks that I, I had not shared the gospel with anybody. I've just been in one of those things where it's just kind of like I got something to do, I got somewhere to be, and I just don't have time. Basically, what I'm saying is I don't care if those people go to hell. We have to tell people the gospel, even if that means they repay us with hatred or ill will. That's what happened to these souls that John sees under the altar. In verse 10, we're told what they said. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, and excuse me, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? That's us sometimes, right? How long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These martyred souls, they, it says they cry out with a loud voice. I mean, 
they're, they're praying. They, they pray a prayer of supplication. It's not a prayer. Notice it's not a prayer of personal revenge or vengeance, but for God's divine justice. These souls long that the justice of God as well as His mercy prevails. They're, they're not being vengeful here. They're asking God to defend His own honor and His name. You know how I know that? Notice what they say. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. They're concerned about God's reputation. God defend your holy and your true character. Is that what we think when we see injustice going on in the world? If you're like me, most of the time it's kind of like, man, we just need to wipe them people out. Take them out right now. All of them. Sometimes that comes into my mind. Is it ever, oh Lord, you do justice to defend your holy and your true name. How long, they say, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They say because their love for sharing the gospel is repaid with hatred. They, they know that justice will be done. However, they want justice to be done so that God's goodness, His honor, His name will be vindicated. So they call out for punishment here. Notice they're not taking vengeance in their own hands. They're calling on God to take care of this. Verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. And then notice what it says. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I don't know about you. That wouldn't be the answer that I would be expecting. How long? And what's the first thing that happens? They were each given a white robe. That white robe there symbolizes victory through faithful purity. And then here's, here's the kicker. They were told to, to rest a little while longer. The idea is that of being patient. Just rest a little while. Just be patient until what? The number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I don't know about you, that's not the answer I'm looking for. Be patient until the last appointed martyr has died. Here was the answer. Be patient, more Christians are going to have to die. That's not the answer we're looking for, right? But here's the question I want to ask you. If that's what the answer is they receive, let, let me ask you a question. Where are those martyrs going to come from? What's going on in chapter 6 here is intended for you and I sitting here today. That call goes out to every believer. See, Jesus didn't save us so that we could have a fat, happy, comfortable life. And fat, I'm not talking physical fat. I'm talking about stuff. God didn't save us so we could be Joel Osteen Christians. Okay? Our best life now. You may have been saved that God will use you in some way. God may use you, your children, and your grandchildren in some way of taking the gospel to the nations. And they may lose their life for that. Just this past week, John Allen Chow, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, C-H-A-U, was killed by tribesmen on the North Sentinel Island. That's an island between India and Thailand. He went to this island knowing that he might lose his life. He went there knowing that these people didn't like outsiders. He hired someone to smuggle him in a boat onto that island. 
He wrote a letter to his parents telling them he might not survive, but these people needed to hear the gospel. So I asked myself, why is this scene here? Why is Revelation 6 here? I think it's here to strengthen us to be faithful. It is to tell us that some of us may be martyrs so that we can prepare ourselves now. Some of us may be persecuted for our faith. So this is here to prepare us now for that. Most of us will not be martyrs. But you may well be persecuted for your faith in other ways. Do you know how to prepare for that? Do you know how to prepare for martyrdom or persecution? Some of you are going, well, I hope I don't never have to deal with that. Uh, let me say that. I don't think we want to go out looking for it, okay? If you're faithful like these people are, it may come to you. You won't have to go looking for it. But how do we prepare for this? I think it's quite simple. We immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We hold on tightly to His promises. Live in the world that the Bible describes, not the world that shallow Christians reinvent for themselves. Read the Bible like you might be persecuted for it. Pray like uh, you would if you were, knew you were going to suffer for the gospel one day. Preach the gospel like you might suffer for it. Mamas and daddies, hold your kids and teach them the faith like there is no tomorrow. Stand on the Word of God even if persecution comes from other believers. It'll come from believers, but listen, you'll be persecuted from other believers if you stand on the Word of God. Verses 12 through 17. The final judgment. Now the scene switches, and this is the final judgment that God will bring. Verses 12 and 13. When he opened the sixth seal, John sees Jesus break this seal, just as he broken the seals, one through five. All this has happened and is about to happen and it's under the control of who? Jesus is in control. He's directing. When He opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. These signs that come with the opening of the um, the sixth seal are very similar to the description that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 30, which describe the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus. Um, some well-respected Bible scholars uh, view these signs as only symbolic, possibly uh, signifying uh, you know, the social or political turmoil in the world. Others believe that these signs are literal. They read these and go, the sun's going to be black. The moon's going to become like blood. The stars are going to fall from the sky. They believe that these are literal cosmic disturbances that announce the return of Jesus and His divine judgment. What these signs actually are, I don't know. They could be either one of those. Are you ready? I don't know. But what I do know is that they are a sign of God visiting this world in judgment. Whatever they may be, literal or symbolic, I don't worry about that. Because the point is, God is going to visit His world in judgment one day. 
John then writes, I'm sorry to, to disappoint you. I know you were looking forward to me describing to you what that black, uh, the sun and the moon, you were looking forward to all that. I'm sorry to disappoint because I have no idea. They're just pointing us to the fact that God is going to judge one day. Then John writes in verse 14, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Once again, exactly what this describes, we can only guess, but what we can know from reading this is there's a total, complete meltdown, if you will. The day of the Lord has arrived, the wrath of the Lamb is here, and it's for sure that on that day... No one will be in doubt as to what is happening and who's bringing this about. That's the point. There won't be any doubt about what's going on and who's doing it. These signs, the point is, church, is they're declaring that the end is approaching. God's purpose for this this display is to motivate repentance. Did you hear that? This chapter is designed to motivate repentance. However, there's the opposite of repentance. Instead of repenting, people try to hide themselves. Notice in verse 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful. Read that. These are people who are significant, dignified, and proud. But they don't stand a chance. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You know, I read that and I go, Why are you not repenting? Is that your question? You're kind of like, Come on, man, what's wrong with you? They choose to hide themselves. I'm going to read to you verbatim what one commentator says about these verses. I tried to redo it. I'm thinking, just forget it. Say what he says. He says, Notice how the wrath of God acts as a leveler of humankind. Notice how the reaction of the kings is the same as the reaction of the slaves. Notice how the rich and powerful are no better than the merely free. Kings are nothing before the wrath of God. Human greatness, the great ones, is nothing before the wrath of God. An army, generals, is nothing before the wrath of God. Money, the rich, and influence, the powerful, are nothing before the wrath of God. All these people are looking for a place to hide, but there is no place to hide. That's the point. You're not going to hide from the wrath of God when it comes. When the final judgment of God comes, you cannot hide. He goes on to say, Everything people sell their souls to gain fails them when the great day comes. Politicians sacrifice their integrity to get elected, but their office won't help them when Jesus comes. And people in Washington wouldn't like that, would they? The rich trade their life for money. The powerful exchange loving relationships to gain influence. And people everywhere prefer enhancing their image to build character to, instead of building character and learning truth. And then he says, but when God knocks the mountains off their roots and yanks the earth's surface flat, when He rolls up the scroll of the sky, nothing that people 
forsook him to gain will protect them from the wrath of the Lamb. You can't hide. One day when that final judgment and that final wrath of the Lamb comes, nothing that you have tried to protect yourself with, you cannot hide from that wrath. One day it will come. Now here's my question. Again, there's a lot in chapter 6 that I have no clue about, but here's what I'm sure of. God's going to judge one day. He's judging now. He's giving out authority to the Lamb, and one day there's going to be a final end time judgment. Now my question for you is, is what about you? How will you make out before the wrath of God? What are you counting on when that day comes? There's only one thing that will save you from the wrath of God on that day, and that's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sin, that He rose from the dead to defeat sin and death, only those who trust in Jesus will be saved by Jesus from His wrath on that day. And here's what I'd say. You don't want to stand before God's wrath. In verse 16 we read that even the mountains and the rocks, if they were to fall on these people as they request, they still don't escape the wrath of God. There's only one way to avoid that wrath. There's only one that stands between you and God. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for you. Here's my question. What keeps you from trusting Him? What evidence do you have that you'll be able to survive without Him? What gives you any hope that you will avoid the wrath of God without Jesus? Let me assure you. No Jesus, no hope. You have to trust Him. The day will come when God is going to judge and no one is going to be left out. When God comes to judge, those who are under the blood of the Lamb, but those who are not, Face the fury and the total, complete wrath of God. You have to trust Christ. And my challenge to you today is, why don't you do that today?